Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Hey guys, today on the podcast, I am talking with Professor Shane O'Mara. Shane is a neuroscientist at the Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and he's also an author and speaker. In fact, he has a wonderful book called In Praise of Walking. And that's what Shane and I are talking about today, walking, the one thing you were certainly made to do. This is a really fun conversation about walking and zombies, believe it or not. Oh, I I watched your zombie talk. I'm sure you're going to be fine. (laughs) Yes, Uh, a talk that I shall never, ever live down. (laughs) You know what, though? What possessed me to do it? But anyway, (laughs) I thought it was very clever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was fun, but uh, that was in a very large uh, theater. I think there were about three thousand people present. It looked and, massive. Uh, yeah, I was uh, <laughs> a little bit uh, happily when they you walk out first, you can see everybody, and it's kind of like, oh god, what have I done here? And then they turn on the lights, which is brilliant because all you can see is the front row. And oh, I'm sure that does help. Else. So uh, uh, you you and when you look up all you're seeing are the lights so that that's really fantastic it just takes away the stage fright but anyway the uh, silliness continued but uh, <laughs> anyway awesome so professor amara i have a company called original strength and one of the things we do in that is well really we're just trying to help people remember how they're designed to move call me shane uh, by the way oh, just yes sir clear. yeah But in original strength, what we do is we try to help people remember how they're designed to move. And we also try to let them know that we're created to do certain movements that are quite miraculous. Uh, And walking, to me, is one of those movements that is it is like the miracle movement because it does so many wonderful things in the body. But you wrote a book called In Praise of Walking that is like a celebration of walking. It's phenomenal. Um, what, what drove your passion for walking? How, like, how did you come to write that book? Yeah. So the, 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 there's a lot of little strands that kind of come together. So the first thing I'll say is that, uh, in school, when we had to go out on runs, I was always that guy at the end who was terrible at running. Um, but, uh, if we ever did long walks, I was almost that guy up the front. Uh, so I'm <laughs> clearly not built correctly. Uh, for running but uh, somehow I've been built rather well for walking because I I really really do enjoy walking so that that's kind of you know from the the personal side of things I've always loved to go for a good walk Um, but actually the idea for the book didn't come from me Um, it it came from my uh, uh, literary agent we were talking about book ideas and just about ideas generally and he said to me what do you like to do and I said, well, actually, one of the things I really love to do is to walk. And I, just, I described how I'd taken a, an hour's long walk uh, through the city to meet him just before uh, I, I had met him. And he said, well, how about this? How about a book on walking? And I thought, oh, God, yes, of course. This is so obvious um, that uh, I really should, I should do it. And from the moment he said it, I, I really realized what a book like that could and should look like. Um, and uh, I wrote out the chapter titles very quickly on a, on a piece of paper about, uh, in terms of what the book should be structured like. And um, 
that's really uh, how the the idea for the book came together and i and i had I, I i realized when he said it that i actually knew the scientific literature very well um uh, but sometimes uh, you know ideas are so obvious that you can't see them because they're just too close to you so right. it's really a confluence of those two different things something i really like to do and the sort of after the fact obvious idea <laughs> that this is something that i should do uh so that's how the book uh in essence came together no it's it's awesome it's uh it's well you've got the right amount of humor and science and just you know what and and all the good stuff that walking does for us um i, I mean i think it's just a, it's a perfect mixture yeah well you see i think you know when you again just to step back from my my own personal story for a moment um Walking is one of these wonderful things that we can do with many, many wonderful consequences for us. Um, and it's kind of like the idea for the book on walking. It's so obvious that we just overlook it. Uh, but actually, it's the kind of primary movement uh, or primal movement even that, uh, that we're capable of. You know, So if you take two examples here, uh, to learn to speak, uh, you need to be exposed to a language community. You have to interact with people. You have to have people babbling at you. You have to hear speech sounds. You have to have a whole lot of things, uh, inputs like this uh, in order for you to, to learn how to, how to use language appropriately to speak grammatically. Um, so that, but it's genetically controlled. We know this from a, a variety of, of studies of people with specific language impairments and all the rest of it. But it needs that input from the outside. Uh, walking is different. It's kind of intrinsically organized. Uh, all you need is the space to move. And uh, uh, there are many beautiful studies, and I describe uh, some of them in the book. But I, I think that, that you know, the, the, the idea really is straightforward that in somebody who doesn't suffer from a, a movement impairment, uh, the programs for walking start to unfold at around about 12, 13 months of age. And, you know, we've all had this fun with kids when they're crawling around and you, you wonder, when are they going to make the first, uh, the first approach at kind of stepping? And, and they do it. You don't have to tell the child. To, now you have to walk. The child will pull themselves up. They'll flop back down. They'll pull themselves up. They'll totter forwards. And gradually they're sculpting all of these circuits to keep them balanced. And they start moving. And it's astonishing. Um, but at the same time, it's entirely commonplace. Uh, so it's, it's this remarkable thing that we can do. Um, and it's something that we kind of engineered out of our lives as well, <laughs> which is the, the kind of the other paradox uh, of uh, walking. So kids walk, you know, when they're, they're learning to walk, something like 2,000 steps an hour or so. Uh, and adults, sadly, walk about four or 5,000 steps a day. So uh, uh, there's a, a dramatic contrast in between what children do, what adults do, and what we can do, which is in a in a sense be more childlike, walk much more. What, since you brought it up, what are the consequences of engineering walking out of our day to day lives? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I, I, we got we got to be gentle on ourselves here, you know. So if you think about humans, you know, even a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. Energy was difficult to get. Getting food was hard. You know, before the agricultural revolution, we had to work really, really hard at getting hold of, of calories. So the natural inclination is you get your calories and you relax. 
Um, but we've solved the calorie problem in the modern world, the agricultural revolution, and then the, the kind of industrialization of, of, of food afterwards ensures that there's calories everywhere. You know, so if, if I want to go down to my local shop, it's only a, I can walk, it's only a couple of minutes down the road. Um, and there's food from all over the world uh, available there. I can get sushi, I can get whatever it happens to be. It's all, it's all available. So we've solved that problem. But what we've also done is kind of solved a problem of energy conservation when we didn't need to. Uh, we, we don't need to worry about conserving calories uh, and expending calories because we have such free access to calories. So we, we've kind of, you know, unsurprisingly in a way, we've put these big brains of our, ours to dual use. One is how do we stop using up calories when we don't need to? And how do we get calories because we need them? Um, and uh, that's kind of given us this malign outcome in the modern world where we've got lots and lots of access to calories and yet we don't move as much as we, we uh, could or should. So speaking of calories, you talked about in the book about how walking can be done throughout the day. And, but when people are trying to get in shape or lose weight, they go to the gym and maybe exercise real hard for an hour, but the body wants to only burn so many calories in a day. So it tries to offset that hard work by resting. Like how does, how does all that work? So um, if you think about it in terms of a kind of like an energy budget or the economy of your body for, for uh, energy, there's a, different estimates out there. But what you can do, and physiologists have done this now in, in great detail over the, la the last 10 or 20 years, you can equip people with movement monitors. You can estimate how much energy people are burning, uh, for example, through uh, looking at changes in oxygen uptake or the uh, changes in, in urine uh, in terms of labeled water. There are lots of ways of measuring how much calories or the amount of calories people burn. Um, and if we, if we take it in really simple terms, the average adult male, depends on your estimates, but needs somewhere between two and a half thousand and three thousand calories a day to stay alive. Uh, so let's call that 2400 because that's really easy to work with. 24 hours in a day, 100 calories an hour. And when you look at the estimates, what the estimates show is that about 70% of the calories that we take in are used just for the purposes of keeping you alive. Uh, we overestimate dramatically the, the calorie burn from things like going to the gym. And what happens is, like the accelerator on your car, your metabolism speeds up and slows down depending on the calorie burn. Um, so you've got all sorts of feedback mechanisms that uh, uh, slow things down. And there's a good reason for this. You know, if you're in, in a situation where there are a few calories available, you know, you're in a famine, for example, or when you, you, you know, go back 200 years and you have to work hard out in the fields to get uh, calories, uh, then it's a good idea for your metabolism to be able to say, no, we've got to wick it back a little here. Uh, so what happens in essence is that you have this mismatch between what we think we burn when we go for a run, which turns out not to be very much, um, and, uh, or we work hard in the gym. And uh, we have this thing where our body, you know, we work our bodies really hard. The body thinks, well, you've obviously worked your body hard to get calories. So now let's take it easy afterwards. So the, the trick with uh, managing your metabolism like that really is, is to distribute the activity as evenly as you can through the day. Rather than going hard at it for an hour, 
in the evening and thinking that will undo all the sitting around and you'll burn off all the crisps or chips or whatever you've eaten during the day or those things. That's not how it works. Uh, our bodies are built for regular, reliable, intermittent movement. Um, and if you track people who live, for example, in, in uh, uh, kind of tribal societies or, or non-mechanized societies, what you see is that their calorie burn per day isn't terribly different to yours and mine. But their activity levels uh, are actually a little bit different in terms of their profile. They do sit around, but they sit on chairs or stools that don't have backs, or they hunker on the ground. So they're, they're actually always correcting their stance just a little bit. So there's a little bit of low calorie burn going on there all the time. And they walk an awful lot. Um, so there, there are recent studies by Herman Ponser, who's uh, at the University of North Carolina, as, uh, sorry, Duke University in, in North Carolina, <laughs> wrong uh, university referred to there. Um, and what he has shown is that in the Hadza in Tanzania, that uh, males walk sort of 14 to 18,000 steps a day on average from about the age of two or three all the way up to their late 80s and females sort of in the 12 to 14,000 uh, range. And the effect of this is astonishing. Um, the average Hadza females uh, who is 80 has a heart health equivalent of a, of a Westerner who's 50. Wow. Uh, and other studies in, with the Samani in South America have shown exactly the same, that the average uh, Samani male has heart health of, at the age of 80 is the equivalent of an American age 52 or, or 53. And this is because they are engaged in lots of regular activity during the course of the day from very early in life all the way through to very, very late in life. That's awesome. So what you're saying is we need to get in 14, 18,000 steps a day. We need to move <laughs> a lot more than we do. <laughs> you and I should be doing this on a WhatsApp call while we're walking around. But the sound quality, of course, would uh, <laughs> suffer. It would be rough. Um, so, so walking has a lot of benefits. How, how does walking benefit the brain? Yeah, so the, the, it's a really nice question. To, and there's there two ways of framing this. So one is to think about what happens in the brain when you get up and move. So um, you're seated, I'm seated at the moment. Uh, if, if you decide you're going to get up, you're going to walk downstairs, you're going to walk out your front door. Uh, you have to form the intention somewhere. Typically, you'll form that intention probably in the uh, in the frontal lobes of the brain where you, you kind of you have this decision making uh, area and then you must send a command signal which commands your body literally to move uh, it must recruit the correct muscles in the correct sequence this is called a, a muscle synergy and you stand up now that's a challenge to the body it's a challenge to the brain standing up is hard um, standing on two feet is even harder and the reason for this is because contrary to how it feels, um, you're actually hung from your head and your feet contact the ground rather than you, you make the movement from your feet up. Now, how do we prove that? We prove it actually in a, in a variety of different ways, but the simplest way is, is, is to take a line from the corner of the eye to, uh, the, the, to the ear. And what you see is that people maintain that parallel to the ground irrespective of the movements that they make. If you watch a figure skater, watch a dancer, 
watch somebody slipping and sliding, whatever it happens to be. The first thing that happens is you stabilize your head. If you don't stabilize your head, you're going to fall over. Uh, so um, the, the system that's responsible for, uh, for this stabilization is called the vestibular system. And this system is plastic. In other words, it can be trained and it's a, it, it responds to and adapts to the challenge and the stressors that you put upon it. Um, so there's that element, first of all, getting your brain up, or sorry, getting your body up uh, is a challenge to your brain. And those kinds of challenges are really good. So that, that, that's kind of from an inside out way of looking at things. Now, if you look at it from the outside in, um, when you're moving your body, lots of changes happen in uh, all sorts of places in your body. Your blood pressure changes, uh, rhythms that were previously quiescent uh, come to life. So heart-lung coupling, for example, really important. You have to get that pace right or you won't be able to breathe and walk and talk at the same time and get the oxygen to where it's needed. Uh, so you have these kind of feed-in or feedback mechanisms. And then you have... Lots of other things happen too. So there are wonderful molecules called myokines, uh, which are produced uh, in muscle when the muscle contracts. So they're, they're activity dependent. You must engage in activity. And these uh, myokines stimulate the immune system, excuse me, um, and they stimulate repair. And they also have a very important property, which is really overlooked. They have an anti-inflammatory property. So they bring down inflammation in the body uh, generally. Uh, and these are all good things. Um, and the, the nice thing is that when you uh, stress muscle, you get a pro-inflammatory response. It gets a bit inflamed and gets a little bit sore when you work it hard. Um, but the anti-inflammatory response kicks in after that happens. And it continues for a very long time. Um, especially when you're working the muscle constantly and regularly, not obviously to its limits, but when you're, you are uh, working the muscle. Um, so you get these repair things happening and these molecules diffuse right around the body and they also diffuse into the brain um, and they have nice effects uh, on uh, brain function. So movement stimulates your immune system stimulates all sorts of organ systems and it has a feedback effect uh, on the brain as well. Awesome. You, you have a chapter called, how are we supposed to walk or something to that effect? Like, let me, let me, let me pull out the chapter title <laughs> here. Um, so how to walk the mechanics. Yes. Or... yes. Yeah. So how, how are we supposed to walk? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so walking, as I, as I kind of emphasized at the start there, is um, a behavior that is, is one that doesn't require somebody else to explicitly teach you it. Um, language, you must be exposed to a language community. If you're not, you will never learn to speak with the fluency and articulacy that we're capable of doing because we had that input at, at uh, a young age. Um, so how are you supposed to walk? I, I, I think... In a sense, it, the, the kind of admonition of the chapter is that you're supposed to walk a lot more than you do. <laughs> um, and uh, if you engage in this walking regularly, it, it will have these very profound effects uh, on uh, your brain and uh, on your body. Uh, you will end up doing things like latent learning. You'll pick up information from the environment uh, just by very virtue of the fact that you're moving around in the environment 
and you will see things, you will learn things, you will think of things uh, that you wouldn't have done had uh, you not been engaging in that movement uh, uh, to begin with. So here's a maybe a weird question, but can walking help us become better people or better versions of ourselves or even better neighbors? So that's not a weird question, uh, actually, in, in, uh, in any way, shape or form. So I think the unequivocal answer to that is yes. And I, I think that the, the final chapter of the book is, is on social walking. And I think this is kind of the great undiscovered or unrealized aspect of, of our walking lives. So let's put it in, in kind of context. Um, uh, when we humans are upset, annoyed, dis or, or wish to disagree with the, the uh, political point of view, what do we do? We gather together in large numbers and we walk in protest. We walk in unison, we chant, uh, we converse with the people that we're walking with, all of those kinds of things. Now, you may agree or disagree with the walk. That's neither here nor with the, the political purposes of the walk. That's neither here nor there. The point is that we do it together. Now, if you think of the chimpanzee, you think of the bonobo, you think of the gorilla, all of these other creatures that aren't terribly distant from us, when they're hacked off with the uh, uh, alpha male in the, in the troop, what do they do? They kill him. Uh, or they expel them, uh, but they certainly don't walk together and protest, and they don't gather males, females, uh, young and old, all doing this quietly uh, together. Um, so our behavior where this is concerned is, is very, very different. And if you ask people, um, how do they feel as a result of having walked together? What you see reliably, and this happens for people walking on pilgrimages, people walking to rock concerts, people walking in political protest, whatever it happens to be, people feel a sense of well-being, uh, often a sense of joy from having been together with others, walking together for that end. Um, and they also experience something which you don't experience in everyday life very often, uh, which is a kind of a blurring of the boundary between self and other. You feel like you're part of something larger and greater than yourself. And those feelings last for a considerable period of time. And even if the, the walk itself was a failure, uh, people are still proud of the fact uh, uh, that they did it. So in the, in the country next door to us uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, they had this big debate about whether they should leave the European Union or not. And a million people turned up in London to walk, to protest against the idea that they should live, leave the European Union. And you can still see that people are very proud of that, that they did this, uh, that they, they didn't wish their country to do that. They failed, but nonetheless, it gave them some uh, a sense of belonging and being with others uh, and allowed them to express something that they, they wouldn't have done. So there's kind of, you know, the immediate physiological benefits of going on the walk, but there's this, this amazing social benefit of being out with others. And, and we know this from walking ourselves. You know, if you, if you, if you go for a walk with a, a trusted friend when you have a problem that you want to solve, you know, you have an issue that you want to work out, uh, the conversation during the walk is often actually the very best thing uh, about the walk. Uh, so, you know, there are all those kinds of other aspects to it. And then there's maybe one thing to say, uh, which is often overlooked, which is how attuned we are to each other when we're walking. We're astonishingly sensitive, actually. Uh, when people are walking ahead of us, if somebody moves or throws their head up or whatever it happens to be because they've heard a noise over there or whatever, everybody looks. Uh, because 
we're, we're not necessarily looking towards the sound. We may not even have heard it because we were engaged in conversation with somebody. But we know where to look because we can judge where we should be looking by looking at the back of somebody else's head. Um, and uh, lots of sports uh, wouldn't be possible were it not for the fact that we're really good at figuring out where people are going to go to, not where they are, but how do you intercept somebody? Uh, you know, when you're making a play in a football game or something like that, uh, you have to know where the person is going to be in a few seconds time. Robots are really bad at doing this. Um, uh, they're getting better, but this is something that we've been very good at for a very, very long time. And children, in fact, are as good as adults. You know, studies have been done on interception in children as young as three and four years of age. And they're very, very good at predicting where the person is going to be in a, in a couple of moments. So one more question. If you're out walking and you should happen to come across a zombie, what should you do? <laughs> if you come across a zombie, well, I, th I think you should throw a net on the zombie if you happen to have one and uh, cart it off to the... <laughs> <laughs> local uh, <laughs> uh, mad scientist that you can find because uh, you're going to win a Nobel Prize for coming upon one of the uh, the undead. <laughs> if you're listening to this, Shane did a fantastic TED talk about zombies. I'll put it in the notes of the show if you're curious about it. Um, they won't catch you. Zombies are very sh slow, shuffling walkers. They're not very good walkers. <laughs> no, and uh, if if. Uh, you look at movies about zombies and I've watched far too many of them. What's always striking to me is that nobody uses bicycles and nobody has dogs or <laughs> uh, they don't run towards where the bears might be because no zombie is eating a bear. It's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I don't think zombies are something to worry terribly about. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I by the way, Zombieland is one of my favorite movies, and I don't know why, but there's just something about it. Oh, Zombieland is great. <laughs> it's a great movie. And actually, Double Tap was quite good as well. I didn't Double expect yes. it to be as good as it was, but it was very good. Well, if you throw Bill Murray into something, it's bound to be pretty decent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shane, it's a, a wonderful book. I don't want to ask you too much about it because I would, I would like for people to actually read it um, because there's so many wonderful nuggets in there. Um, I do know that. And, and you did say this in the book that walking really helps with your creativity. And since you love walking, I, I know it helps you solve problems and things. Um, has it has it sparked your creativity to write another book? Yes, it has. In fact, I've uh, another book which I'm working on with my editor at the moment. And I, I uh, during the period of the pandemic, I dictated uh, a good section of it when I was out walking. So it, it's. Uh, uh, hopefully will appear in the UK, uh, Ireland, Europe uh, early next year, and then we'll see about the US. Uh, hopefully it'll be perhaps towards the, uh, the summer. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a slightly different book to the, the walking book. What I, what I try and do is understand how we get from uh, our brains, which are collections of neurons, to neighbours and neighbourhoods all the way to nations. Uh, wow. So uh, I'm basically saying that uh, uh, we, we need to think about how we share realities together and we, we create realities together, how we can imagine our futures together and we reimagine our pasts. Uh, and the, the mechanism by which we do this is 
the the way that uh, we've been doing it just now we've been having a conversation and this is how we align our beliefs and all of those things with each other that sounds like an awesome book um we'll we'll see see. (laughs) it's quite a challenge uh but i i'm i'm happy with the uh with the direction it, it has taken. And uh, yeah, uh, if all goes well, it should be available uh, next year. Awesome, awesome. If somebody wants to purchase In Praise of Walking, where would you uh, have them look? Uh, if, uh, ideally, uh, support your local bookseller. They will they will buy it. But failing that, you can uh, uh, give Jeff Bezos uh, some cash. <laughs> and, uh, you will find it on uh, amazon.com. Uh, uh, or uh, uh, one of the other many online uh, sources. It's available in Kindle. Um, there's an audio version. And of course, it's in hardback and in uh, softback. Awesome. Shane, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for taking your time with me. Thank you so much for the request. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now get outside and play.